You may be seated. I know you guys are all worried because that's 11 verses and sometimes we spend an hour on two or three. Uh, I do think we will get through it. Uh, but this is the last uh, sermon in our second series in Genesis, answering the question, what in the world happened to this world? Why do we see death, suffering, and pain? Is it God's fault or is it our fault? And we've uh, seen very clearly that it is indeed man's fault. Uh, and now we're seeing some of the results of the fall. Not only did we immediately see a murder take place, the very first sin recorded after the original sin of Adam and Eve was the murder of Abel. So sin increases and grows quickly. And it doesn't necessarily start out small and get bigger. Uh, once you've given yourself over to sin, it takes over. So our main point for this morning, what we want to draw out of the text, is that all pain and suffering in this world is the creation and product of man. However, all hope in the world is the product of God. Most of our section this morning is going to be taken up with the lineage of Cain, the children who came from Cain. And sometimes it's lost on us because this is the very first uh, family tree listed, that this is the only family tree that disappears completely from the world. All the other lineages that we will see in Genesis turn into nations. This line is extinguished. This line does not last. But we will see that there were likely believers in this line, and those believers will continue on into heaven, but the line itself was destroyed. So we begin with Cain and his son Enoch. But first we want to answer a question that seems to stump or at least stumble uh, a lot of liberal Christians. Christians who rather than going to the word for truth, try to impose their truth on the word. And this issue is primarily where did Cain get his wife? This is a big issue for a lot of people. I'll admit it's never been one for me. Uh, but every single commentary I read this week brought it up. And at first I'm scratching my head like, why is this such a big deal? And then I realized that for some people, this is a big deal. So it has to be answered. It has to be answered adequately. Sometimes we are a little too flippant answering the questions of honest skeptics. Sometimes we just say, well, this is obviously what happened, um, so chew on that and get over it. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm actually going to give a defense for why this was okay, because Cain married his sister. That's the only way we can understand God's word. Either that or he married a niece, but at some point, the children of Adam and Eve had to marry each other. And this is a problem for most people because we look at this from the sixth dispensation of God's outworking of his plan from the church age. We look at this from the 20th or the 21st century, and we try to impose the way things are today on the way things were back then. Some try to answer this question by saying, well, God must have created other women besides Eve. 
God must have created wives for the sons of Adam and Eve and created husbands for the daughters of Adam and Eve to avoid incest. But this is not what happened. Acts 17.26 assures us that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And in fact, this is how man shares in the imputed sin from the fall. And this is how man shares in the Savior who came from the line of Adam to save the line of Adam. If there were any not part of the line of Adam, they could not be saved by Christ. Moreover, all humanity came from Eve. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam is the father of all living. Eve is the mother of all living. There is simply no getting around that Cain married his sister. In Genesis 5-4, we see that there were other sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The tricky part gets or comes when we get to Leviticus 18, written by the same author, Moses, to the same people, Israel, but it seems that there is something contradictory if we don't rightly divide the word of truth. Because here in Leviticus 18, it says, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. The rest of this chapter goes on to detail every permutation of incest that is not allowed in Israel. What changed? Did anything change? You see, we serve an unchangeable God. So how can his laws change? How can his expectations change? How can Abraham marry his sister and be blessed by God? Abraham said, I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister. Abraham went down into Egypt and feared Pharaoh and so told him that this is my sister. When indeed that was true, but that was a partial truth. She was also his wife. And we might say, well, was he spiritually weak? No. In fact, Abraham had a child by a woman who was not his wife or his sister. But it was Sarai's seed that God blessed. It was the union between Abraham and Abram and Sarai that God blessed. And God said that I will bless her and indeed I will bless I will give you a son by her. The line of Israel came from Abraham and his sister Sarah. How do we understand this? How do we accept this as 21st century Christians? How do we answer the honest skeptic that looks at Genesis 4 and decides he can't believe this? Well, we look at what makes things wrong. We go to the core of the problem. We've looked at murder over the last couple of weeks. Why was murder wrong? It's also declared wrong explicitly under the law of Moses and under the law of Christ. The issue with murder is that it goes against the created order. God created life to be life and to give life, not to take life. 
God created man in his own image. And in fact, when we get to, actually that should say Genesis 9-6, not 6-9. When we get to Genesis 9-6 and God institutes capital punishment, what is the issue at stake? God's image. Taking a life is extinguishing one of God's images off of this earth. So the issue for murder is sanctity of life. God created life, and he cares for life. What about sodomy? Also declared wrong under the Mosaic law and the law of Christ. And it goes against God's created order. God said that marriage is between one man and one woman. This is a sanctity of marriage issue, but it does go back to the sanctity of life because marriage purpose is not only to emulate Christ in the church, but also to proliferate life. That can only happen between the union of a man and a woman. How about adultery? Declared wrong by the Mosaic law? Declared wrong by the law of Christ? Against the created order because God said marriage is between one man and one woman. We have a polygamist in the text this morning. He's coming up in a little bit. The issue here is, again, sanctity of marriage. This one doesn't explicitly have sanctity of life as part of it. We see that God's created order doesn't need to include the sanctity of life in order to have something against the unchanging moral law of God. The sanctity of marriage is a creation order. When we come to incest, this is not against the sanctity of marriage. This was the created order for marriage. What is the issue? There is an issue. Because Leviticus 18 does tell us that this is wrong. And this is still wrong today. But it was not wrong in Cain's day. Because this is a sanctity of life issue. As the curse had its way in the genetics of man, close reduplication of mutations in cells caused a problem for marriage between siblings. So that today, and in Israel's day, marriage between close relatives caused deformities and even caused a death. This is wrong because it threatens life, the very purpose of marriage, the very purpose of that union is to produce life. Marriage isn't what we think about it today as just infatuation. Marriage is a choice to love one another and a choice to serve God in that union. And how do you serve God in that union? but to be devoted to one another, and if God blesses you in such a way, to produce life. In fact, being that this is a sanctity of life issue, and being that there were no other options besides a sister, 
for Cain to marry anything besides his sister would be against the moral law of God because there is no other way to produce life. So we see that not only does God's law not change, but it is more consistent than we realize. And when we start to dig in and to understand God's created order, we start to see that his ways are higher than our ways. And his word is how we come to know him, come to know his heart. So I will remind you again what dispensation we are in in the text. We're in the text where we are in the dispensation of conscience. Romans 2.15 tells us that before law, men were guided by the law of God written on their hearts. So at some point between Cain's marriage to his sister, when it was not only appropriate, but the means to produce life, and then Israel, where mutations caused God to, sanction, to no longer sanction this sort of union. At some point between those two points on our timeline, God wrote on the heart of man that this is no longer acceptable. And then he codified it in the law of Moses. So we see that things such as sodomy and incest have always been against the law of God because they are a sanctity of marriage and a sanctity of life issue. Murder has always been against the moral law of God because it is a sanctity of life issue. Incest was good when it produced life. Incest is bad now because it cannot produce life. It threatens life. So we are absolutely correct in saying that it is against the moral law of God today to marry one's close relative because this threatens God's purpose for marriage. But we shouldn't have our faith tried when we enter the text of Genesis 4 and see Cain obviously married his sister. And let me tell you something else. If Abel were married, he probably married his sister. Seth probably married his sister. This was God's created order at the beginning. And that that has changed because of the fall should not bother us. It might. But again, we wrestle with the text. Not everything we come to in scripture is comfortable at first. All right, with that issue out of the way, let's move on to Cain's wandering. When Cain, in his unrepentant state, was removed from the presence of God, from the presence of the garden where God's presence remained, he entered the land of Nod. Now this is an alliteration, or rather a transliteration, where they just took the Hebrew word and thought that this was the name of the land. Well, it's actually the Hebrew word for wandering. It's a present participle. It's a verbal form, not a noun. He entered into the land of wandering, east of Eden. Cain began to wander, just as God said he would. But he does not 
remain in that state. He rebels, just as his character has him. He built a city, and he called the name of that city Enoch, which means dedication in Hebrew. He named the city after his son, probably in an effort to make a name for himself. This should sound familiar to us. In Genesis 11.4, why was the Tower of Babel built? They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, after God said to go over all the earth, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now a city isn't what we would think of it in our day and age. A city in Hebrew simply means an encampment that is fortified. So we ask the question then, why does Cain feel he needs to buy a, or to build a fortified encampment? Didn't we see that Cain is afraid of his siblings who might come against him for murdering his brother? But didn't God say that he would protect Cain? So going and building a fortified encampment after God said, go and wander the land, shows that he does not trust God. He does not trust God to protect him, but he trusts the work of his own hands to protect him. This is also likely the same issue happening at Babel. Sometimes we forget that this generation that came out of the flood might be scared that God would do it again. Why do they have to build such a big tower? Maybe they're worried God's going to flood the earth again. And somehow they might save themselves despite the fact that the floodwaters covered even the mountaintops. Perhaps they might save themselves because they don't trust the God who punishes. Cain's life is marked by disbelief, distrust, fear. But not everyone in his line is like him. Not every preacher you hear preach on this passage is going to be so generous towards Cain's line. Oftentimes, that's because of the way they interpret Genesis 6. They need the sons of God to be the righteous line of Seth and the sons of man to be the unrighteous line of Cain. So they have to read unrighteousness into the line of Cain because they don't believe Genesis 6. I'm not going to do that. In Genesis 4.26, we are going to see that during the lifetime of Seth's son, Enosh, there was a revival. There was a revival of worship towards God. And guess who was alive at that time? Irad's son, Mahujael, and Mahujael's son, Methushael. These names mean God makes him live, and the man of God. So their fathers, Irad and Mahujael, likely named their children out of a reverence that they had for God. 
God does not have grandchildren. Faith is an individual issue. And generational sins, though they might challenge the next generation, are not unbreakable. You see, even the children of Enoch or of uh, Cain's line have every opportunity to come to the Lord in faith. And some of them do. And I think that's why they're recorded here in this text. Because the generation of Israel to whom Moses wrote this book did not need these names translated for them. When they read the names Mahujael and Methushael, they understood that these are names of reverence for the same God that they worship. There were believers in Cain's line. Cain's line was not hopeless because faith is offered to every individual. Grace is offered to every individual. There is no one unsavable who has ever been born. But again, God does not have grandchildren. So even with godly parents, it is no, it is no guarantee that the children will be saved. See, we, we are in a, uh, a uh, section of Christianity which doesn't, oh, I'm forgetting this word. We don't preach doxologies to our children. We preach faith to our children. We don't teach children that they are already saved because they are under the covenant of grace, which their parents have through faith. But we teach children that they must come to the Lord in faith. God does not have grandchildren. There is no covenant of grace which covers multiple generations. We can look to Lamech for this, to see that though he comes from a line which was godless and godly, both, he did not have faith. It's possible that his father did not have faith because although he was named the man of God, who named him? His father. So this is more of a reflection on Mahujael. What did Methushael name his son but Lamech? And what does Lamech mean but warrior? A conqueror. This is a similar meaning of the name of Nimrod. This is a pre-flood Nimrod and Babel. We see that the same sins that happened before the flood are going to happen again after the flood. Lamech was a warrior. He took to himself two wives, polygamy. The one was named Ada, and the other was named Zillah, which means ornamented and shadow. Shadow might also mean twinkling, shimmering. Doubtless, his wives were beautiful based on their names. But the issue here is that he had two. This is against God's created order. This is against God's moral law. 
Lamech does not seem to care. Not one bit. But it is a problem. And it is demonstrative of the other issues going on in his life. We'll see that when we get to his statements of pride. But first, he's got four pretty interesting children. We're not going to get into as much detail as I would like to this morning because we've got six weeks of getting into more detail about names and what they might mean and who they might have been before the flood. But for now, I'll just introduce you to them. We have Jabal, which means commencement or the beginning. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. We see farming and animal husbandry coming onto the scene just seven generations after Adam. This says that he was the father of those who have livestock. And we might ask the question, what about Abel? Didn't he have herds? Well, these are two different Hebrew words. What Abel tended were zone, which means sheep or goats, which were used for sacrifice. What Jabal had were, oh great, Miknea. These were camels, cows, cattle, horses, sheep, goats, anything that man could use to till the ground. Rather than the sweat of his own brow, it's the sweat of animal kingdom. Cain, you'll remember, had his green thumb removed. He would no longer be successful at tilling the ground. And it's no wonder that different means of tilling the ground came from his line. They were also, he was also the father of those who dwell in tents. Well, this does indicate a nomadic lifestyle, but one of advancement, one where they are able to dwell in relative comfort. Jabal's brother is named Jubal. These are very similar. Notice as well how similar these names are to Abel. They're very similar in the Hebrew. We're going to have one named Tubal-Cain, which, again, is very similar to the names Abel and Cain, might be that Cain's line is trying to reproduce promise, a promise that they don't want to go to God for, but rather think they can create themselves. But here, Jubal means producer, and he is the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. I mean, I'm not a musician, so I have an appreciation for how much talent this takes. I have an appreciation for how difficult it is to make the right notes. But not only is he making the right notes, but he's probably the one producing the instruments to make those notes. He's a pretty intelligent guy. But where does he get the time to do this? Isn't he supposed to be tilling the ground by the sweat of his brow, suffering? Where did he get so much free time? Man's advancements tend to have one purpose, making his life easier. And as our lives get easier, we tend to forget God. We're not going to see these same advancements in Seth's line. 
That doesn't mean these advancements are bad, but for what purpose are we using them? We might look at music and say, oh, wonderful, he's producing music to glorify the Lord. Does all music glorify the Lord? No, not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. I would doubt that the music Jubal is producing is for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. But perhaps a sedative for living on this earth under the curse with no hope in the world. Isn't that what we often use music for to numb the mind? Here at church, when we worship the Lord, it activates our mind. Because worship is the response to truth. Worship is the proper response to truth. You see that when you get to chapters in Revelation. I think there's 11 different songs in Revelation. And they all come after a revelation of God's might, God's justice, God's mercy. When truth is revealed, worship is the response. When truth is concealed, inner turmoil needs medication. Do you turn to God or do you turn to man? Let's move on to Tubal Cain. Tubal Cain was the half brother of Jabal and Jubal. He was the son of Zillah, and the children of Zillah will be back to her in about six weeks when we get to the, uh, the events just preceding the flood. But her kids seem to be just a little bit different. Tubal Cain means the one who has acquired production. You remember Cain is an acquisition. When Eve got Cain, she said, I have gotten a child. And that was a play on words. His name was Cain, which means to get. And she got Cain. I digress. But the one who has acquired production. Someone gave him this understanding, or something gave him this understanding. Once we get to Genesis 6, I'll give you a defense of why I think this was angelic interference in mankind. He became the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, perhaps even the wood and the string instruments that Jubal used to play music. And perhaps even the weaponry that Lamech will use to kill a young man. But Tubal Cain is given information on how to produce all implements of bronze and iron. This is science. Seven generations from Adam. Chemistry. Metallurgy. And then the rare introduction of the name of a woman into these lines. We're not given much information at all on Naama. She's the sister of Tubal-Cain. Her name is Naama, which means beautiful, graceful, or pleasant. One of the beautiful daughters of men. We're only given names of women when they stand out for some reason. Rahab stands out. 
she's listed in the line of Christ. Ruth stands out, she's listed in the line of Christ. Now we have history that tells us why. We don't have history that tells us why Naama stands out. Some think that she is the wife of Noah. Now I will be giving a sermon on the wife of Noah at Mother's Day. Yeah, I've got that planned already. <laughs> but I don't think that was Naama. Moses knows that his audience might know who Naama is. He doesn't say much about her. But imagine this. Oh, and his sister, that was Naama. And Israel, oh, okay. That's kind of the image I get here. Naama was probably the first one to produce Nephilim, the offspring of angels and men. It was probably in this seventh generation from Abel where demonic interference in the human line threatened the sanctity of life, threatened the seed line of Seth, the line that would lead to Christ. It was such angelic corruption that led to the necessary judgment of the flood to wipe everything off the face of this earth. It sounds a little crazy, right? We've got six weeks to build up to that. For now, just keep coming back for the next six weeks. And if I lose you after that, let me know. So what was this antediluvian civilization like? They had both urban and nomadic life and advancements in each. They're practicing animal husbandry, at least for agriculture, perhaps for such products as milk. Maybe man started to drink milk at this time. Remember, he'd only been given the products of the ground. Even milk has not been given to him to eat. Some people say, well, he didn't have to eat meat. He could have eaten milk or cheese or something like that, and that would have been fine. That's not food that God gave to man. Even that would be wrong at this point. God has given him plants to eat. It's possible that Jabal was raising cattle for meat. It is possible that before the flood, man started to eat meat, might have started as early as Cain, who forced to till an unforgiving ground may have turned to something a little easier for sustenance. We see metallurgy, music, poetry, and polygamy, all marking these early generations of mankind. But now we come to the character of Lamech. From the words of his own mouth, we see his character, just as we saw Cain's character from the words of his mouth and Satan's from the words of his own. So Lamech, either through a boast, a defense, or a threat, shows his character. And he does so in song or in poetry. 
And this is Hebrew poetry. It's not rhymed by sound. It's rhymed by thought or idea. The thoughts parallel. So you'll see an ABAB structure to this, where the yellow is going to match and the pink is going to match. These ideas hone in on the main idea. A statement needs help sometimes to be clarified, to be specific. So Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, who are Ada and Zillah, give heed to my speech, which is the same as listen to my voice. This is Hebrew poetry. Why does he want them to listen? He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. Now there are a couple options of how to read this and all are perfectly acceptable in the Hebrew. In fact, there are three different ways of reading this that I found. And it's only context that's going to tell us how to read this best. But our first option here is that he has killed a young man for something less than murder. He has dealt a death blow to someone who did not deal a death blow to him. His retaliation was of overwhelming force. And he is proud of this. This man and this boy may be the same thing where he's saying in the first line it was a male. And he is giving in the second line the age of this male, that he was young. And the wound and the striking may also refer to the same thing, both a means and a manner. In the next verse, though, we see that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech says, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This is why I think the context points towards this not being an actual murder that has happened. And I don't know if anyone has ever told you that this might not have actually been a murder that has already occurred. As I said, there are three options for what this is, and each one is perfectly acceptable in the Hebrew text. One is that this is a defense. Perhaps Lamech is crafting a legal defense for retaliation that ended in a murder. And his defense is on the basis of this was not premeditated. As Cain's murder was premeditated and he was protected, mine not being premeditated will be protected even more. This could be a defense, but this does not seem to match the character of Lamech. So context weighs against this interpretation. It could be a boast. This is the most common interpretation. In fact, I would say that this is probably the one I lean towards. But there is another one, the threat, that I will show you that, honestly, I, I don't have enough defense to deny that one. So here, the boast, it could be a boasting about his power and strength of self-preservation. It makes sense why he would do this in front of his wives, trying to impress them, perhaps, with his manliness. The, uh, I'll protect you kind of guy. But equally, this could be a threat. 
And that's difficult to see in the way that it has been translated because translators by necessity have to also function as interpreters, especially when dealing with issues between Hebrew and English because Hebrew verbs do not work the same way as English verbs do. Hebrew verbs do not indicate tense in the same way ours do. A perfect and an imperfect Hebrew verb do not tell us that the action has happened in the past or if the action has happened in the future. They indicate certainty. And this certainty can either be in the past or in the future. So this verb, I have killed, is in the perfect tense in Hebrew, which usually means a completed action, which logically happens in the past. But it's almost even in scripture when this is used to speak of an event that is future but absolutely certain. Many prophecies are written in the perfect tense, things which cannot have happened yet but will certainly happen, and that is the purpose of putting it in the perfect tense. So it may well be here, based on context, that Lamech is saying, I will surely kill whoever wounds me, even a boy for striking me. He is giving then a merism, be it a full-grown man, or a young man, whoever comes against me, will not succeed. Why this may be a better interpretation is because his third verse makes more sense. If Cain is avenged sevenfold by the hand of God, then I will avenge myself. 77-fold. This fits with Lamech's character. Yeah, God said he'd protect Cain. Watch how well I'll protect myself. My purpose in sharing these different options is to show you that we shouldn't be so dogmatic about things that aren't explicit in the text. We should be able to change our understanding based on further evidence. There are doctrines in scripture which are absolutely certain. That salvation comes by faith alone, for one. These which we use as paradigms to understand the rest of scripture. But on issues like this, sadly, many, many people get into spats and arguments about how they have come to understand this. And I'll just say that there is freedom in the text, and it's usually context that determines. <coughs> So we don't want to separate on things such as this. Did Lamech really kill someone or was he just threatening to do it? We get the main point. This is a violent man. This is a man who turns to himself rather than turning to God. This is a man who trusts himself more than he trusts God. And this is the spirit and the character of his age. And his age ends in destruction for what reason? because every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, when he turns inward rather than upward to God, 
spirals out of control and becomes violent and filled with sin. But verses 25 and 26 break the pace. It's as if the voice of Eve interrupts the voice of Lamech, as Lamech is boasting in his power and in his ability and in his pride. We see that Eve was given another son. That as we look at humanity and say, even the hope that we see in some generations don't fix the problem. Because although Cain bore children who looked to God, those godly children bore children that looked to self. This is an endless cycle. We need something to break that cycle. Adam had relations with his wife again. This begins abruptly after the words of Lamech. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. His name means appointed. For, she said, God has appointed me another seed. In place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Did Cain ever admit to killing Abel? He didn't, actually. Remember, Adam and Eve, though they did so imperfectly, they did admit, admit to their sin. But leave it to a mother to admit her son's sin for him. I'm well aware of that, those uh, circumstances. But if you notice, Eve is maturing. She is maturing spiritually. Her words from Genesis 4.1 are different from her words in Genesis 4.25. She has learned something about the character of God. Because when she becomes pregnant with Cain, she says, I have gotten a man, and he is the Lord. What does she say in 4.25? God appointed to me. God did this. I understand now that it's not just trust in God's promise, but trust in God's means. Trust in how God is bringing this about. God gave me a promise, and it's not my job to make that promise come true. It's my promise to trust in him that it will come true. I have gotten a man, and he is Yahweh. And in Genesis 4.25, we see her humility. God has appointed to me another seed. Eve was saved by faith before she had Cain. And her statements about Cain demonstrate her faith. But it does demonstrate her immaturity in her understanding of doctrine. Remember, we said she got it right, but she applied it wrong. Now she's got it right, and she's applying it correctly. We should seek the same maturation in our spiritual walk. That as we stumble and fall, we continue to look to God. And we don't point the finger at him and say, you said you would give me a seed, and look, 
he's killing my children. No, we say, I misunderstood. I was hasty. I tried to make your promise what I wanted it to be, rather than listening to you for what it truly was. So we see that Eve is maturing spiritually. And we see the fruit of this as well. A godly mother training her godly children. Oops. So that Seth becomes the first one in the seed line of Christ. After Adam, Seth is the first one listed in Christ's genealogy. Seth is not as well known as Cain and Abel. We like to focus our attention on Cain and Abel. And it's good when we're in the text at that point. But do we realize that Seth is also the father of all of us? Adam is, and Seth is, because Noah came from Seth, and we all came from Noah. None of us are from the line of Cain or the line of Abel, but we are all from the line of Seth. And Jesus, the Savior, Emmanuel, is also from the line of Seth, so that this Savior who chose to come and take on flesh became our brother. And that was how he was able to save us. He did not become someone totally distinct, born from a different creation than Adam. But he came from the line of Adam. He came from the line of Adam so that he could save those from the line of Adam. And then we see yet another element of hope. Not only has she been appointed another seed, but this seed is producing. This promise is growing. Not extinguished as Abel was, but leading into generations that would result in Christ, that would result in the promised seed. So to Seth, to him also, a son was born and he was and he called his name Enosh, which means frailty, immortality. Notice the difference, the humility that is in Seth's line, the humility that comes from Seth's children. It is from Seth's children that we see men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord here is Yahweh. Do you remember the difference between Yahweh and Elohim? Elohim is the sovereign God, the God of creation, the God of power and might. And Yahweh is the God that draws close, the God who covenants himself to his people, the God whom Israel serves the God on whom Israel calls. I have a very specific interpretation of what it means to call on the name of the Lord, and that is to offer the proper sacrifice, to bring 
God's promises before him rather than our own works before us. And that is why this is a perfect closing line for Genesis chapter 4 and for the Toledot of Adam. Because man begins to do exactly what Cain did not. They begin to bring the proper sacrifice before God. And we notice this in the account of Israel as well. In Genesis 12, 7, probably one of the most important sections of Scripture in all of the Bible. The promise that God makes to Abraham. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and he called upon the name of Yahweh on the altar. In Genesis 26, this promise of land, seed, and blessing is repeated to Abraham's son, Isaac. It says, The Lord appeared to Isaac the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh. Isaac trusted in the promise of God, and he brought the proper sacrifice before the Lord. He pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. And this is characteristic of God's servants. In 1 Kings, we see that Elijah calls upon the name of the Lord, while all of the prophets of Baal do not. 1 Kings 18 says, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. You know what happens? God accepts Elijah's sacrifice. And he rejects the sacrifice of the prophets of Baal. What happened to Cain and Abel? God accepted Abel's proper sacrifice, and he rejected Cain's. Elijah turned to the proper object, God, with the proper requirement of faith. On the basis of the perfect sacrifice, though he did not know the name of Jesus, 
he knew that a blood sacrifice was required. And he came with the proper content of faith. This has ramifications for Israel's future as well. You remember in Genesis 12, I said this is probably the most important section of scripture in all the Bible. It tells us the storyline for the rest of scripture, for all of prophecy. How God will fulfill his promises to Abraham. That's what scripture is for. It is a record of that promise. It is a legal document showing God's faithfulness. And here in Joel 2, we see that their future, their future salvation as a nation will come at the time where they call upon the name of the Lord. When they offer the proper sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ, rather than the works of their own hands. So in Joel 2, verse 30, it says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We're in the context of the very last hours of world history. And what happens? And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. There will be a remnant in Israel, and they will turn to the Lord in faith. Isaiah 66 speaks of the same event, speaks of the day of the Lord and his coming. And verses 3 and 4, though I don't have them in here, speak of the improper sacrifices that Israel is bringing on the basis of Hebrews 10, which tells us that God no longer accepts temple sacrifice because it is contrary to the sacrifice that he has provided perfectly in Christ. The temple sacrifice, if it were to continue today, would be blasphemous because it would say by our own hands and not by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ do we save ourselves. And you know what? The temple will be restored. There will be a third temple built, and it will be active in the last seven years of human history. And Israel will continue to sacrifice on the altar because they do not accept the proper sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of these final seven years will be to show them who their Savior is. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who already came to settle the sacrifice forever is the one and only sacrifice which they can offer for their salvation. And when they turn to him and call upon his name, he will come and rescue them. And we today in the church, though we do not have a sacrificial system as Israel did, we still call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, this is how Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians, which spends quite a bit of time talking about their position in Christ, what is already finished on their behalf because of their faith. 
Here he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul is drawing a line around the church and saying, those who look to Jesus Christ for their salvation, those for whom Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice they bring before the Lord, those are the saints sanctified in Jesus Christ. And that is all of us. Because we have believed in God's promise on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ. And what is the content of that faith that we believe? Paul sums it up later in the same book. And he says that he delivered, or I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He gave us the same message that he received for his faith, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, confirming his death. And that he was raised on the third day, confirming our resurrection as well. And this is according to the scriptures. Believing this is offering the proper sacrifice. The sacrifice which has already been made in Jesus Christ. So in summation, our main point is that all of man's ways are suffering and pain. But God alone offers hope and life. We must turn to him and to nothing else. And salvation from this world comes by faith alone in God alone for the promised sacrifice who is Christ alone. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you once again for your word, that you have cared enough for us to share your heart with us in scripture, that we raise our thoughts to you in prayer as we come to understand your thoughts in scripture. We pray that these edify us, that these sanctify us, that as we keep our eyes trained on the hope of your soon return, uh, that we are purified in that hope. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.